MSW Media. Joel Greenberg, the former friend and confidant of Congressman Matt Gates, has pleaded guilty to sex trafficking of a minor and a variety of other crimes. Is Matt Gates next? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend, Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. Now, before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Kimberly Summers, Joe Targonski, thank you, Joe, for uh, joining our patron list, and, of course, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You, too, could become a patron on our website on topicpodcast.com just click the support link at the top of the page so patty i've got to tell you it's been a little while i will tell i i have to say if i do sound different it's because i am actually uh in temporary housing right now I had sold my place uh going through quite a, a a big change in my life yeah that's uh it's kind of exciting and i know it's a lot of work and stress but uh, it's good to hear your voice, my friend. Absolutely, absolutely. Obviously, a chaotic time uh, in the news as well, uh, and particularly for Congressman Matt Gates. You know, we, you know, just today we had uh, his confidant plead guilty. I have to say, the last time we talked about him, he really was showing a lot of bravado. Uh, right now, if I was his attorney, I would be cautioning, cautioning him to show a little bit less. Well, but even over the weekend or in the last few days, he was talking about how, uh, you know, these the, he's falsely being accused of naughty favors and even diminishing the gravity of the charges by calling them naughty favors is disgusting to me. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I mean, I think, you know, the interesting thing with Matt Gates is you know, he's the rare person for whom his defense is. I am a total pig. Right. Like that's his best case scenario. Is that I don't you know, even then I don't even. Yeah, I mean, even. Yeah, it's going to be essentially like, hey, I was not really technically engaging in prostitution with people who are almost minors. That's his best case scenario. Um, but, you know, the, the problem for Gates is, you know, this guy, Greenberg, pleaded guilty to so many crimes. Uh, I, you know, it is going to be. um it's hard for me to believe, let's put it this way, that the that federal prosecutors gave this guy a cooperation deal uh, just because, um, you know, he might uh, he had some minor some minor case to bring. I have the feeling that, you know, he is uh, going to be bringing a case against a serious target, most likely Matt Gates. Right. And, and while, you know, I think that there's a lot of obviously uh, a, a lot to mine comedically for late night hosts and for conversation, it is really uh, discon disconcerting that we are talking about young women who are treated as disposable in these situations. You know, when I'm reading through some of this stuff, you know, we're, we're obviously focusing on what he did, whether he paid, you know, gave it a ghost, like what is it called? A, a no show job to somebody, um, you know, these are, again, it puts a light on how women are considered objects to powerful people. Uh, in particular, obviously the younger, the better to these guys. And it just, it makes my stomach turn. I don't know if you saw that there was somebody that speaking of, if you were, uh, Matt Gates's um, attorney, did you see that someone flew a banner in Orlando? that said TikTok Matt Gates. You know, I did. I, I have to say, this is, you know, Matt Gates is somebody who I really don't have much sympathy for at all. 
Uh, and obviously the allegations here are just awful. And, you know, to me, you know, I really, my focus, I, I agree with you, is on the victims of this, whether they regarded themselves at the time as a victim or not. You know, one thing that is important to remember uh, here um, is that a lot of times people participate in activities. It's, it's, it's more complicated than, than it may seem. And even if people, you know, yes, we're receiving money here, it can ultimately years later have a devastating impact on their lives. I mean, I certainly have, when, when I had uh, investigated um, uh, exploitation cases, uh, there, you know, there were, or human trafficking cases, there were situations where, you know, women w believed at the time they were in love with the person who was trafficking them. I mean, it's, it's a complicated situation. But what I would say is, you know, regarding... Uh, this matter, while, you know, yes, it's, I think a lot of people understandably are guffawing at someone who is despicable and at times comical himself. It's just, it's not a laughing matter, as you point out, because there are, there are young women involved and there are other victims. I mean, this is a guy who was scamming taxpayers uh, and others, right? I mean, he's just not a you know, he is somebody who should have been nowhere near public office whatsoever. Well, and when you talk about, you know, women who may have wanted to benefit from it or enjoy whatever, you know, well, people will say that. Well, she, you know, she enjoyed it. She wanted to play along. The thing is that girls and women are taught to accept abuse as just a standard for how we operate in society, whether it's in the workplace or in public. You know, this is how you're treated. This is how we'll talk to you. We smile and we're we often feel safer if we just play along to get through a situation. So, you know, I'm never surprised when a 17 or 18 year old uh, is involved or, or younger and thinking that they're in a position of power because that's how we are really raised is the, it's just smile, play nice, uh, you know, and, and then we find ourselves in these situations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say. Um, you know, for for Matt Gates, I do think one thing that he's done is is you know by his own admission here, okay, he is engaged in activity that is extraordinarily questionable and problematic, and he better be hoping to God that there's he's not charged with anything with which prosecutors can bring that conduct in. In other words. Even if he's charged with some technical violation of campaign finance laws, okay? In other words, you know, he's holding fundraisers and using the money on cocaine and women, or, you know, whatever, something where it's not, it's just purely a white collar crime. No jury is going to want to get to quit this guy, even if there's some technical defense to this. Uh, just, you know, his conduct is so, is so abhorrent uh, that I think. He has really put himself in a spot where, you know, fighting the DOJ and winning a trial could be uh, potentially off the table. And that is usually your leverage on the defense side. Uh, and if he doesn't have that, uh, you know, he should be uh, very, very concerned. You know, in so many ways, our world is calmer. We're taking our masks off. I'm, I, I am enjoying that part, uh, despite all the stress of the various life changes I'm going through. Um you know, uh, it's great to, you know, have uh, a sane person in the White House. But yet uh, the Trump era uh, continues in some ways with his assorted cast of characters uh, constantly, you know, his, his acolytes uh, in many ways emulating him in more ways than one. Oh, yeah. Well, they, you know, they are emboldened. By the la again, I've said this for the last four years, or, or uh, the number of times that we've spoken, whether on your podcast or in conversations, you know, because there is no accountability, that continues to embolden them. You know, they they there you see the numbers of people who still believe that Trump won the election. It's astounding to me, and I think that that gives them a lot of cover, and they continue to get donations. You see, oh, that was the other thing is that Matt Gates has scheduled an event with. Uh, Marjorie, what's her name? Taylor, Taylor Green. Green. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they have an event. Uh, as I, I, I have to assume it's a stand-up comedy show. <laughs> uh, I, I've seen gimmicks like this before. <laughs> so, 
you know, that's, that's the thing is that they really have the true believers who see these folks as continuing to carry the banner for Trump. Uh, it's more about um, theatrics and poking the eye of the libs than it is about policy or anything along that. And that's what we saw recently, of course, at the ouster of Liz Cheney. Similar sort of thing where, you know, really the, the, the Republican caucus has been taken over by uh, show, show people, men and women, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and, uh, and Matt Gates. All right. Well, you know what? L- let's let's bring in our guest now. Uh, you know her because she is a frequent guest on the podcast, but also she's an MSNBC legal analyst and she's the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, uh, one of the the larger U.S. attorneys' offices. It covers uh, uh, it covers uh, Detroit and that whole that whole large portion of Michigan, uh, and that is Barb McQuaid. A fantastic uh, uh, lawyer and 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 a very interesting person uh, who can, uh, I think, give us a lot of insight into this topic. So let's bring in Barb McQuaid. Welcome back to the podcast, Barb. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Renato. Good to be with you and Patty. So I I don't know about you. I I actually had to spend quite some time today reading this uh, plea agreement. Yeah, same. I've never seen one this long. It's 86 pages, um, and there's not a lot of fluff in there. There's a lot of detail about all of this criminal conduct, much of it devoted to the factual basis of the details of of exactly what uh, Joel Greenberg is admitting to. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I had the same reaction. This is extraordinarily long and detailed, and obviously a big part of that is just that Greenberg committed so many crimes. I mean— just a whole wide array. I don't. I think it was one of these things. Maybe he wanted to check off every box, like some people like to visit every state. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know, he's got the map or something. He's checking off each crime as he, he completes uh, that that section of the U.S. Code. Uh, but uh, I do think part of it I thought was interesting in terms of the level of detail that prosecutors in this. These are federal prosecutors out in Florida used in crafting this plea agreement and you know one thing that i will say is you know it's probably let's maybe we should give a little bit of background here you know a plea agreement of course is essentially an agreement between the uh the pro you know the united states government in this case the the feds and the defendant regarding you know, certain or certain agreements in relation to the defendant's uh, change of plea from guilty to not guilty, um, and 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 I I think it's fair to say you mentioned the factual basis. There's a lot of considerations that go into writing the factual basis of the plea. Now, you know, maybe you can explain, Barb. You know, for our for our listeners, what some of those considerations are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you say, say Renato, a, a plea agreement is essentially a contract between the parties that say, you know, in exchange for giving up certain things and receiving certain things, you know, we're going to agree to do the following. And it, it binds both parties uh, to, to follow through on their contractual agreements. But in particular, this factual basis is one that uh, locks the defendant into a certain story. Um, this is what he will say in open court. Uh, you know, the judge uh, may ask him some questions along these lines about tell us what you did that makes you believe you're guilty. And so together, the parties, both lawyers, will have gone back and forth and very carefully uh, listed the facts that Joel Greenberg is willing to admit to. And the prosecution is also very carefully making sure that each element of each offense is covered in that factual basis so that he can't wiggle out of it later. And it's interesting that there is such a lengthy and detailed factual basis here, because that signals to me that they may want to be very careful of avoiding any situation where Joel Greenberg can wiggle out of some admission later. You know, if he just admits in very general terms to some of these things, uh, it's easy to quibble about the details later. But by pinning him down on all of these details, they have locked him into a story And so when he takes the stand, if he takes the stand pursuant to this cooperation agreement down the road, um, they don't have to be concerned about whether he's going to follow through on what he agreed to. They've got it uh, in writing and signed. And so 
I think that detailed factual basis says to me that um, this is for more than just this case. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And that that was one of the things that I was thinking about and had in mind when I asked the question is I do think that one important reason why prosecutors uh, draft a factual basis that's detailed is to lock somebody in. Of course, often we would put somebody in the grand jury, a, a cooperator in the grand jury to testify regarding these matters, uh, to lock them in even, you know, even further uh, is an option that we would sometimes do as well. But the idea here, just so uh, listeners understand, is that because he's going to tell the judge these things under oath, uh, if he takes the witness stand and changes his mind, uh, he's got a real uh, consequence for doing so. First of all, he can be impeached in the in the during that trial and cross examination. You know that can be presented to him, but also the uh, you know the judge, the sentencing judge. For him, will be you know they will make that aware that the judge aware of that fact as well. It's you know essentially he's he's not going to have any credibility changing his story. But one thing though, I wonder, Barb, is you know they included a lot of detail here that didn't seem to me to be um, necessarily things they needed to lock him in on, like when he sent texts and emails and what the email said and things like that. Do you think that there is an element here in which they wanted to signal to others who they wanted to cooperate or potential people they wanted to 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 plead or something like that? You know, maybe Matt Gates that you know their their case was strong or they had substantial evidence. That's a really interesting idea. I I, I suppose you could say if you were say hypothetically Matt Gates or someone else, you know, it does make reference to other adult men uh, that. Joel Greenberg um, saw engaging in commercial sex acts with a minor. Um, so any of those men, uh, whoever they may be, would obviously be very interested in reading this plea agreement. And in looking at it, they have very specific dates of text messages, Venmo accounts, credit cards, hotel records, and other kinds of things that I suppose someone could say, holy smokes, that they're talking about me. They've got a case against me. Um, but I don't know that that's how prosecutors typically work. They don't really need to. Um, they don't need to show their hand to would-be defendants before they're charged. So um, I'd be surprised if that's what's going on here. But you are right. They, they really um, telegraph all of the evidence that they have. I think in some ways this is uh, an effort to, to lock in the story that they have on, on Joel Greenberg. Um, but, but you're right in that it does provide a roadmap um, and so I suppose that's one one possibility is that they're trying to get the attention of other people. And one thing that you could do, I suppose, is uh, encourage those people to come on board and, and be additional cooperators as opposed to waiting for a knock on the door to, to be arrested. Yeah, I just the, what made me think of that is that sometimes when we were trying to get um, people to cooperate, we would instead of having an indictment uh, with charges, we would have a very detailed complaint, uh, which would have have an affidavit that we would put all this evidence in. And, and just so the listeners understand here, so everyone understands, the an affidavit, when you charge someone would be a complaint, it's essentially based on an affidavit that um, an FBI agent, let's say, would would swear out. And there the, the agent would go through all the evidence that she has. That's very different than an indictment, which is just going to be the formal charges that a grand jury will return. So we could put in all sorts of detailed information. And then when the FBI agents went to arrest the person, they handed them the complaint. The idea is that they might look at that and decide, OK, reading through this, they've got me on tape or whatever the issue is. And, and they might flip. Yeah, I suppose that's a possibility, although I don't know that. uh I would necessarily want to put it out there in the public domain like that. Um, I mean, chances are there's additional material they have as well. You know, sometimes when you first approach somebody that you want to cooperate, like you might play tapes for them, you might show them documents and other kinds of things, as you say, to uh, help them realize that this is a strong case against me. And the best thing that I can do here is cooperate and, and do that early. So, uh, so there could be some of that going on, but the, the level of detail here. Uh, suggests to me that they do have a lot of information um, that has, you, you know, this is not the first time they're talking about about cooperation with Joel Greenberg. I mean, they've clearly sat down with him 
over uh, many hours, uh, shown him documents, um, had him talk with them about what those documents are um, to, to result in this 86 pages of, of evidence that he is, is undisputed. And so I think um, this cooperation is, uh, you know, has been a long time coming. This is not something that has been uh, worked out overnight. Yeah, I think that's definitely uh, the case, uh, as usual. agree with you 100%. You know, one thing that I'm curious about, and I really don't necessarily have an answer on this, but one thing I'm curious about, you mentioned, uh, for example, uh, Barb, the, the references to other men, uh, but no one is named. Now, obviously, under Justice Department policy, no one who isn't charged should be named here. So it's not surprising to me that other individuals who committed crimes with Greenberg or in the, or were involved in his crimes aren't named here. One thing I find interesting is that instead of going through and saying like individual A did the, you know he arranged Greenberg arranged for a commercial sex act with individual A, they just used this blanket, you know, other men. Why do you think that is? I don't know, um, but it, you're right in that it is men plural and not singular. I suppose one possibility is that they are still exploring who might be a defendant and who might be a witness or a cooperator. And so to the extent there are multiple men, it may be that they want to be able to approach all of them and say, you know, do, do you want to be a, a named defendant or do you want to work with us and try to minimize your exposure? And so I suppose that gives them more flexibility in deciding how to treat some of those of those people. Um, and it may be that some are more egregious than others. It may be that some participated on numerous occasions and some on one occasion. And so all of those things probably matter. But I guess by using that more vague language, it leaves their options open about how they want to deal with each of them. And in the, in the way those men, if they're approached, respond could dictate um, how that all shakes out in the end. If someone says, you got me, uh, I'd like to, you know, come in and share what I know, um, might be treated very differently from someone who denies and wants to fight to the end. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. There's a lot of judgment calls that are made here in terms of what the right move is to charge or not to charge. Um, and But, you know, one thing that is uh, important here, and I think we're, we're – focused on i know a lot of you have already heard there's a variety of crimes that are charged here the but the kind of the lead charge here is sex trafficking of a minor and that's what we've been uh, more or less been discussing here and one thing that i think is worth noting here is this is a uh the the minor here was fairly close to the to being an adult and uh but there was a window of time there were several months where um at the very least, I, I believe that uh, Greenberg was arranging for commercial sex acts and engaging in them himself with this minor. And under the statute, um, it is not uh, it, it's it is absolutely not a defense that Greenberg, you know, whether Greenberg knew or not uh, that she was a minor. In other words, as long as she could, he was in her presence, he could apprehend her and see her. That was enough. Uh, you know, I they went through, I think, great pains to uh, make clear here that he would be able to do that. You know, I I I thought, you know, it, you know, it was interesting to me that they didn't really telegraph here anything that would suggest to me that he would necessarily be cooperating against other men. In other words, you know, if, for example, there were other men that he had trafficked the minor to. You know, you would think you'd have a, a sentence in there saying, you know, Greenberg spoke with, you know, person X, you know, and person X or with the other man. And they were, uh, you know, they were, you know, he knew that they actually did meet up or were in her presence or whatever. They had an ample opportunity to to see her, that sort of thing. Yeah. As you say, the statute is really interesting when it comes to knowledge and intent. Uh, which you know, ordinarily requires that you know the, the key facts. But for this particular statute, it's kind of like statutory rape. As long as the defendant had a reasonable opportunity to view the, the, the minor, um, then that's enough to, to put him on the hook if the person ends up being under 18. In fact, it alleges that this particular minor at one time 
said that she was over the age of 18 and told them that, um, and that Greenberg later found out by improperly using a database he had access to uh, through his employment, learned that she was under the age of 18. But, you know, if these men are engaging in sex acts with her, it's a little hard to be able to say, I didn't have a reasonable opportunity to observe her. And so it, it puts the burden on um, the, the the perpetrator to uh, refrain from engaging in sex if he has any doubt about her age. And I, I, so I think I think that element is pretty easily satisfied, um, regardless of what conversations they may have had. You know, that, what, how old is she, and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. They did they did do a lot on that here for for him as well. I was a little surprised because they spent paragraphs on him regarding reasonable opportunity to observe which i thought was interesting i had a similar reaction there is because you know he certainly had a lot of interaction with the with the minor um one one thing that uh you know you had mentioned just a moment ago is greenberg accessing this database you know there are some counts related to that you know can, can you explain to us what's going on with with those particular charges yeah, so as you say, it's a it's a veritable potpourri of charges in this case. There is this um, sex trafficking of a child, which is getting understandably and appropriately most of the interest and most of the attention, and that's the one where you know, based on reporting and his own admissions, it seems most likely that that Matt Gates may be caught up in it. But in addition, there are two counts of um, production of false identification documents and aggravated identity theft, and. Um, it doesn't say why he was using them, but Joel Greenberg would manufacture fake driver's licenses. When he when he got information about other people, he had the equipment he ordered through his, his employer um, in, at Seminole County to make driver's licenses uh, that were fakes with his own photo but someone else's name, um, and he would carry it around in his wallet. He did that on a couple of different occasions. And so um, count eight is the production of a false uh, driver's license, and count nine is aggravated identity theft because it actually belonged to a real person. It isn't just fake. It belonged to someone he bought a boat from. You know, He, he got some key information from this guy um, by having the bad luck of selling a boat to Joel Greenberg, and he exploited that information by using it to make a fake driver's license. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if he went around telling these girls he was someone other than who he was so that he could uh, – maintain some confidentiality, but he used this um, these fake driver's licenses and would carry them around in his wallet. Yeah, I have to say, very, very bizarre um, individual. Uh, I mean, it's it, it really shocking uh, how, how heinous and sort of blatant this guy was about his crime. Of course, he was also... And at this point, you probably aren't surprised. He also, uh, if you're listening to this, this is a guy who also was stealing from the public purse. So he was skimming off very significant amounts of money, uh, purchasing uh, like cryptocurrency and stuff like that. Uh, you know, one thing that was not entirely clear to me. I mean, some of you know, obviously there was a lot of you know stuff here, but you know there may be a lot of reasons for this. But essentially, it was you know a uh, a, an attempt to make money off the public. I mean, I think that's the sort of thing that is very uh, open and shut, and it th- that doesn't seem like something to me that he's necessarily cooperating against others on. It's just that, you know, he wanted to get his uh, sports memorabilia and different things that he spent the money on for himself, and, you know, that they simply, um, essentially, uh, that's, that's a, a count that you... A prosecutor is going to want your cooperator to plead to because you need to have him admit them the fact that he's a fraudster because that's something I, I'm sure that he's going to get asked a lot of questions about. Yeah, I mean, as you know, you have to own your crimes when you're a cooperator. Um, you have to fess up to them. You have to take take the hits when you get cross-examined about them, especially those that go toward honesty and dishonesty. Uh, that is fair game for cross-examination, which makes his cooperation – um, you know, kind of tricky in this case. As you said, he's pleading guilty to, to wire fraud. And it sounds to me like he was just, you know, betting the house money to to buy this cryptocurrency. So he was using money that belonged to the county in hopes of, of getting rich by investing in some, you know, risky cryptocurrency. 
um, but not not his own money, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of county money. Um, he also submitted false claims for COVID relief <laughs> uh, when, when, when that became available. And I think perhaps his most egregious crime and the one that could cause him the most problems as a cooperator is this stalking count where he sent uh, letters falsely accusing his, his opponent, a teacher, uh, who was going to run against him uh, in 2020, uh, falsely accusing that teacher of being involved in uh, inappropriate sexual relationships with students, posting it on Twitter, Facebook, and sending letters to to the head of the school. So, um, you know, falsely accusing someone of a sex crime when you're testifying uh, against someone in a sex crime uh, can be some very serious baggage. So that, that tells me that um, these prosecutors have got a lot of corroborating evidence because uh, as a witness, Joel Greenberg has a lot of baggage. Yeah, he is definitely somebody that, uh, you know, if you're, you know, now that I'm a defense attorney, that's the sort of cooperator you want to be cross-examining. Uh, you know, uh, reasonable doubt uh, is his middle name, so to speak, right? So I think, uh, <laughs> uh, so I do think that, uh, I do think that uh, it is wise that they, you know, like you, like you said, they owned it here. Uh, I do know, by the way, we do have a, a lot of questions from our listeners. Uh, Patty, do you have one? Well, I think it's in this vein is, uh, you know, if you were Matt Gates's defense attorney, what type of conversations would you be having with him right now? Yeah, I, I, I would certainly, um, you know, again, this is based on public reporting and what Matt Gates himself has said. It would seem that there is a very high probability that he may get a knock on his door from FBI agents um, sometime in the early morning hours soon. And so I would prepare him for that, that, um, you know, if, if they're there, you need to ask for your attorney. And that's me. Uh, you need to think about whether you want to cooperate. Do you have any information that you can share about other men or other topics that they might be interested in? Or um, are, are, do you want to, uh, you know, uh, exercise your right to remain silent and fight this all the way? Because when you're someone who is a public official like Matt Gates? He's got to think about not only his liberty, but also his political career. And so um, sometimes those two are at odds with each other. Sometimes, you know, it's best to keep quiet when you're defending yourself in a criminal case. But um, that doesn't always work in the court of public opinion, because sometimes people will assume the worst if you don't get out there and, and get ahead of it. And so we've seen him doing a lot of public speaking about this. And I imagine Renato, the... Uh, Defense attorney in you is probably cringing every time he opens his mouth and says, you've got to just keep quiet and you're, you're, you're making this harder on yourself. So I, I think that they would want to spend some time thinking through that strategy of what do you do when, when the FBI comes calling. Yeah, absolutely. You're, there's no question about that. I, I, uh, I have to say that it can be hard to convince. A lot of times people can compartmentalize. So it can be hard to convince uh, clients who are, whether they're defendants or they expecting to be charged or under investigation uh that hey you know yes you care about your life your business your career whatever but this is you know potentially going to just transform your entire life experience yeah and we need to the, everything else is secondary uh, i do know patty you, you have a, another question why don't we go to that one before we move on Excellent. Uh, so it was reported that the FBI seized Matt Gates's phone. Does that mean what's on his phone can be potentially used to submit into evidence? Does that include emails, voicemails, texts, transactions on apps? Yes. And, you know, one of the things that has become more difficult for investigators in recent years is the ability to get text messages. It used to be able you could get that uh, with a search warrant to the phone company. But now people are more and more using encrypted apps like WhatsApp and Signal. And so you need the actual phone sometimes to see those things. So one of the things that may be that Joel Greenberg has produced is his phone showing encrypted messages between him and uh, the other men that are referenced in the documents or maybe him and some of the, the women, including this minor girl who was involved in some of these transactions. It also makes reference, Patty, to Venmo payments. And so perhaps looking at Matt Gates's phone for his Venmo payments. Um, it could be used for text messaging between, um, if it is Matt Gates and some of these uh, uh, women referenced in the indictment. 
So all of those things, and yes, those could be used as evidence uh, in a case. In fact, in sex trafficking cases, it is so common these days to use uh, text messages. One, it can show a lot substantively. It can show you where somebody was, who they were talking to, at what time. It can corroborate the testimony of other people, and it can also satisfy that important federal element of interstate commerce uh, just by sending a text message typically can satisfy that jurisdictional requirement. So um, my guess is that that is um, um, the, the phones will be important pieces of evidence in this case. Yeah, I think I definitely agree. Nowadays, that is sometimes the most important evidence that a prosecutor has is what they can seize from a person's phone. Think about what you use your phone for, the searches and the, you know, all of the, not only communications, but just uh, so many of your thoughts can be revealed through what you do on your phone. Uh, no question about that. Now, you know, one thing that our, some of our listeners asked about, Barb, is, you know, th they were thinking that there might be like a separate cooperation, you know, side agreement that lists, you know, everything that he's going to do. Now, typically that was not my experience having something like that, but what a plea agreement does is it says that essentially the, that that person, that defendant, has to agree to cooperate in any way that they're asked to by the government. But the government doesn't offer a cooperation deal uh, unless they know that this person is going to be able to provide assistance that's going to cause them to be able to bring charges against someone else. Is that also your experience? Yes. Um, and, and typically there's not a side deal. It's right there in the plea agreement. And this one has a fairly lengthy cooperation provision and as is typical, it was common in my former office as well, it's pretty one-sided. It says that um, the defendant is going to tell everything he knows. Uh, if he lies, then the deal is off and he can be charged with additional crimes, and this can be used to cross-examine him. Um, it's, you know, he can be polygraphed. Um, and um, it is the decision about whether to seek a reduction in the sentence as the reward at the end of the day is in the sole discretion of the prosecutor. And so if they're not satisfied with his performance, at the end of the day, they can say, no, we, we expected you to testify. We expected you to share your phone. We expected you to debrief with us. Um, he's got to do everything they ask him to do uh, in order to get his credit. So, um, And typically the sentence for the cooperator is delayed until all of the cooperation is completed. So if they want him to testify at trial, then they will delay his own sentencing so they can keep that leverage over him uh, until he does so. It also could be the case, Renato, that um, in a case like this where you have someone who is so unlikable, <laughs> I, mean, I think a jury is really going to dislike Joel Greenberg and who has some credibility problems, it could be that he, he is going to be a non-testifying cooperator. If he has provided the names of other people, like the minor who could testify against uh, someone like Matt Gates or these other men, if he has provided his phone, if he's provided Venmo, if he has given all the uh, the leads that they need to be able to build a case, that alone could be enough. So sometimes you don't need a cooperator to testify uh, if they can lead you to other pieces of evidence that are enough to build the case. So that is a good point. And I, what I would just say is, you know, in addition to that, uh, that you know, you would not give a cooperation deal, whether you need him to testify or not, to somebody like Greenberg, who's committed so many crimes and serious crimes. Like, for example, I mean, sex, sex trafficking of a minor is a very serious offense, um, and obviously could have a, a tremendous impact on a minor's life. And no one would give that person a cooperation agreement unless they felt like they were getting a, a very substantial benefit in return. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I agree with that, um, especially someone who's engaged in sex trafficking. That is such an egregious crime. Um, you know, one of the things you need to do is uh, when you're assessing who gets uh, to be used as a cooperator versus who is the cooperatee, I guess, the person against whom it is used, is you usually want to work your way up a, a criminal organization. You want to go after offenders whose conduct you believe is even more egregious than the person uh, whose cooperation you're seeking. Um, and, and, and I would say that you, you don't um, count the person's job, you know, their stature, the fact that Matt Gates is a sitting congressman doesn't, by definition, make his conduct more egregious. Uh, I would think that um, the person who's um, 
the target of the cooperation is typically someone whose conduct is more egregious. Uh, and so whether that's Matt Gates or other men or, or he can deliver multiple other men um, in terms of criminal conduct, you, you would want to know that uh, in, in assessing and balancing the cost with the benefit here, the benefit that Joel Greenberg is going to get in the form of a reduced sentence potentially uh, is that he is going to deliver convictions of other sex predators against children. That's right. And, and people at home should also know that just because Greenberg is cooperating, that doesn't mean he's going to get a slap on the wrist uh, or, you know, or, you know, he's going to get to service, you know, serve a, a, sh- a probation or something like that. I mean, sex trafficking of a minor is a serious offense. I believe it carries a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years, if I recall correctly. So. It, it it does. It, it's uh, for children between 14 and 18. It's um, it's 10 years below 14. It's 15 years. I did notice that in the plea agreement, they uh, they they said that they were operating under Rule 5K, which allows for a guidelines reduction, and also 3553E, which is that uh, escape hatch for mandatory minimums. So it's possible that he could get a sentence below the 10-year mandatory minimum here. Uh, which would certainly be a strong incentive for Joel Greenberg. But I agree with you that ultimately the sentence is up to the judge. The the government makes a recommendation about what the sentence ought to be and, and makes the judge aware of the cooperation uh, in, in all of its detail. Uh, and then the judge considers that in deciding what's the appropriate sentence. But I, I think you're right. In light of all of this conduct, the sex trafficking of a child, the ID, you know, the the, the false ID, the wire fraud using the county uh, funds for the cryptocurrency, the stalking of the teacher, the um, fraud on on the COVID fund, all of that has got to count for some things. I agree with you. I don't think he's getting a slap on the wrist, but I think he could otherwise be looking at some very, very substantial time. And this is a way for him to mitigate that exposure. That, that's right. When you're considering uh, whether or not to take a plea agreement, the consideration is essentially the strength of the government's case on one side and then you know, you're considering what the potential, you know, benefits and drawbacks are of that plea agreement. And here, you know, the fact that, you know, he's pleading to very serious offenses. And certainly I'm if I was counseling him, I would be telling him that, you know, he's going to be getting some very substantial time regardless, even with this plea. Mm-hmm. Uh, to mm-hmm. me, in my experience, somebody like him who's not a career criminal, although, boy, it sure seems like a very a big side job for him. Uh, you know, they don't usually agree to plead guilty to uh, offenses that will put them in prison for many years unless they think the government's case is really strong. And I think that's also just apparent from the document how strong the government's case is. Yeah. And, you know, I'm dying to ask you this as a, as a criminal defense attorney. I, you must have perspective on this. How difficult is it to get the client to understand and be very rational in understanding that the government has a strong case and I will be convicted and I need to plead guilty to cut my losses here. I imagine that sometimes defendants are just sort of in a stage of denial, especially people like, you know, Joel Greenberg strikes me as somebody who's, you know, kind of a, a wild, um, I, I don't know, um, fancies himself uh, a bit of a master of the universe. And, and for people like that, I imagine it must be difficult to accept the humility of, you're going to prison. The question is just for how long, and let me help you reduce that number. Can it be difficult to get that person to think rationally under those circumstances? Oh, yeah. I mean, it is <laughs> very challenging job in general. I'll just say that much. Uh, you know, it's very it, it's an interesting job, but it could be a challenging job because you are dealing with people go, who are, by definition, uh, people who've made very poor decisions for themselves, uh, usually, I mean, you know, it's, there are exceptions. I, I literally, you know, uh, obtained an acquittal for a man who was innocent. And I've had plenty of clients who I think, uh, you know, the government eventually realized that they, they were barking up the wrong tree. But there's plenty of clients uh, out there who are interested characters. And, yeah, I think it can, it, you know, sometimes it really it takes a lot of trust, but it also takes a lot of persuasion and tough talk from a defense attorney to help a client realize um, that they don't have another option. And, you know, essentially, as a, if you're doing your job right as a criminal defense attorney, you, you really have to 
make sure you feel confident about what is the right thing for your client. You have to really do your due diligence. But once you are, you really have to do everything you can to persuade your client, the way you'd be trying to persuade a jury to, to, you know, to help that client understand the situation they're in. And for some people, it, it, they can't see it until things become very real. In other words, you know, for a lot of people, they know they're under investigation, but as soon as they put down the phone and they're not talking to me anymore, they can go back to their lives and compartmentalize it. Or until the government arrests them or something like that, even if they're indicted, you know, well, they're out on bond and they could forget about it and the case could drag on. And it, it for different people, it comes at different times. It may be, you know, oh, oh, the weekend or two, you know, before trial uh, where you're really crossing, doing some mock cross examinations of them. It could be. Uh, you know, uh, months before that. But, you know, frankly, uh, you know, it, Greenberg's lawyer had to have put, you know, really helped him understand the difficult situation he's in. And I will just say from the looks of this document, it looks like they made the right call. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the level of detail shows that they've got a strong case against him. They've got documents, uh, witnesses, um, you know, all of these records from Venmo and hotels and credit cards. I mean, my gosh, he was using the county credit card for some of these crimes. Um, the, the evidence is, is, appears to be very strong. And so at this point, as you said, the, the, the key thing to do is to cut your losses. And if he can reduce his exposure by cooperating against others, then that's probably going to be uh, his, his best outcome. Yeah, and I, 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 I agree with you there. One thing I do wonder regarding some of the stuff with Matt Gates, You know, we've heard a lot of reports about Matt Gaetz's, um activities. Uh, you know, even as you put it by his own description, they're, they're highly questionable, right? Like maybe would be my way of putting it. Um, one thing I do think, and this is sort of my perspective on the defense side, is that sometimes conduct can be so problematic that regardless of whether you have a technical legal defense, going to trial can be very difficult because as a practical matter, a jury's not going to want to acquit you. And I do you know, wonder, uh, not just for Greenberg, but also for Matt Gates, that even if, for example, you know, Gates is charged with something other than sex trafficking with a minor, that that could be a challenge for his team is, you know, is the, the indictment written in such a way that some of the sordid details are going to be highly relevant at trial and things that the evidence they can't exclude, which will make the case untriable. Oh, that's really interesting. Like maybe it's some sort of fraud charge, but uh, in, in trying the case, it will necessarily require the disclosure of sex trafficking or something like that. Right. Sex with minors. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or even, or even, uh, or even it's just, cocaine you you know like all sorts he did it to buy cocaine or something you know or you know small amounts that they don't charge but nonetheless yeah. uh, you know they're not going to like the, the 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 cocaine party uh where he's pay he's using the donor's money to buy the cocaine i i don't know i'm just uh oh that's so no that's so interesting but i think again that's where your perspective as a defense attorney is very different from my own you know i i always think in terms of elements and proof but i i think especially when you're a person like Matt Gates who has a political career, you have to think about those kinds of things. What embarrassing facts could come out about me? And, um, you know, it, it, you so often see guilty pleas in cases of sex predators. Um, and I, I think part of that is that, you know, that, that shame of um, putting their family through that, putting themselves through that uh, as, uh, as the facts come out in all of their gory details. But I did see um, news reporting today that Matt Gates had made public statements, something to the effect of, um, uh, you know, referring to his conduct. I have been accused, he said, of exchanging money for naughty favors. And so it seems to me that he is trying to minimize this behavior now. You know, in the same way we heard Rudy Giuliani and others talk about Obstruction of justice is a mere process crime, which, you know, any prosecutor would tell you is a very serious crime. But trying to get people to kind of shrug and think that it's not a big deal. Boy, to, to exchanging money for naughty favors. I mean, naughty is like right up there with 
you know, the child predators who refer to it as kitty porn to try to diminish it or, or, or corrupt officials who see something like that. You got his hand caught in the cookie jar. <laughs> He's stealing from the public doll, you know, um, using that kind of language strikes me as he kind of knows it's coming and he wants people to be able to say it's no big deal. Yeah. I got to tell you, by the way, I absolutely hate that term kitty porn. I mean, I, no yeah. more heinous crime that I ever prosecuted than child exploitation. Um, just so special pace in hell for those people. Uh, I, I will say that, you know, I've never defended anyone in that realm, but you know, like you were saying a minute ago, I did when I was a prosecutor, they would, there were defendants who would ask to have the courtroom cleared so that no one would be there. Like we would wait or we would wait until everyone had yeah. left because they were. Yeah. Or they, yeah. They were, and they were also afraid of getting harmed um, in custody. We would, uh, when we had uh, you know, child exploitation defendants, our magistrate judges during, you know, initial appearance and things like that would not um, state the charge out loud because they're afraid that other prisoners might overhear it and they not do well in, in detention. So it is, it is a special kind of crime that um, people take very seriously. I mean, even among prisoners, those people uh, are, are sometimes at risk in, uh, in custody. Yeah. It, it is definitely something where like, like, you know, if I was Greenberg's attorney, you know, you could see why you might want to plead because, Whatever defense could possibly be here, uh, a jury's not going to be very interested in technicalities uh, in a case like this. Uh, they're going to if you were essentially doing this conduct, uh, I think they're going to be, uh, uh, you know, convicting you. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a uh, sort of a maybe a game theory. I don't know how you, but it's just the human psychology. I think the reality of it. Mm-hmm. The jury thinks that you are a bad person and who's a criminal type to then that that's, you know, that's not good for you. Well, Barb, you know, before we go, I wanted to talk to you because there, you've got an exciting new venture that you've done, which I think is awesome. You are, you now have your own co-podcast uh, with some other women who I think are amazing uh, who have been guests of our podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and where we can listen? Yeah, thank you. It's, it's called sisters in law and, uh, I, I co-host it with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins, and Jill Winebanks. We all got to know each other it, doing uh, legal analysis for MSNBC. And so um, we we record once a week, and it's our take on the legal news of the week. And you can hear us, you know, wherever you get your podcast, as they say. Huh. Uh, the name is actually hash, Hashtag Sisters in Law. Well, I think it's great. Uh, all, of, all of the co-hosts are awesome, but... I am excited to hear the next episode. Can't wait to hear what you got to say about all the other legal news this week. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Renata. Always great to be with you and Patty. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 